You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 65 for Monday the 29th of May 2017. My guest today is Robert Scott Norton, who writes high-octane sci-fi thrillers and is the creator of The Tomb's Legacy, a universe of fiction. A lifelong fan of Stephen King and Doctor Who, it was perhaps inevitable that his work would sit somewhere between horror and sci-fi. Robert's books all take place in this same story universe, The Tomb's Legacy. His debut sci-fi novel, The Face Stealer, is the first book in a series and sets up this fictional universe. A second series set in the future looks at Southport 100 years from now as repercussions from The Face Stealer start to be felt. When I chatted to Rob, he started by telling me about his early sci-fi influences. Comics was always there, but the, the biggest influence was always Doctor Who. Um, and I think one of the first creative things I ever did was get uh, an exercise book from WH Smith and started to draw a Doctor Who comic in it. And it was just a retelling of stuff I'd seen on the telly the previous week. Um, but it was, it was like pretty special to me. And it was at that point that I realized that I could create stuff and enjoy it. Um, that's probably the, the, the biggest influence really on, on getting any writing done. And when I was reading about you, I saw that one of your favourite writers for Doctor Who is Terence Dix, who happens to be one of my favourite writers uh, for Doctor Who. So that kind of dates you around John Pertwee-ish time? Um, so I started watching Doctor Who probably about two stories before the end of Tom Baker. Uh-huh. Um, Terence Dix was the author that I would always see when I went to the library. So it was uh, Wednesday evening library was open late so we'd go along I was able to take out three books at a time and they're always Doctor Who books and mainly they were from Terence Dix so his kind of style of writing has probably been embedded in me for a long long time but listening to him now in later years just his whole attitude and approach to it and that I guess at some point he must have seen that it was you know a very big creative um, activity for him, but he's very businesslike about it. And the reason that lots of those novels became shorter and shorter was because he was on a very tight deadline to get these things out, and he was just following a very strict work ethic. And that's something that I think I can relate to now as, as an indie: is um, you can't sit there and wait for the muse. You've got to grab that time and and get the words down on the page because we are all working to deadlines, whether we like it or not. So you started with that initial comic. There's a, a long way between a comic and a novel. How, how did that interest, uh, you know, keep going while through your teenage years and the examination years when you've got lots of distractions? I think the, the things that I always liked best in school were the English lessons. So, I mean, that sounds um, quite, quite dull, but we had one project and it was to write your own mini novel and uh, draw your own cover and get it all printed out and present it to uh, the teacher. And I loved that. I thought that was brilliant. 
I stayed up really late. I was probably behind on it, but I stayed up really late. Um, so many different influences from um, stuff I was loving at the time. Lots of horror film influences. Um, I produced this thing. And it, <laughs> this thing, it had a cover on the front that I'd drawn from um, the cover of the Psycho 2 novelization. And it <laughs> that was like a photograph of some bloodied butcher's knife on the front. And I'd just drawn this. There's me as a teenager handing in this book and um, <laughs> I, I loved that teacher didn't question that at all but um i think i think from about that point on i was always trying to do something uh, with my writing so i was trying to write some doctor who short stories and then several times from i suppose my like 15 16 onwards i was always trying to start a novel um but there was such little support back then you might be looking to find a how to write book in the library but really i was just on my own just trying to make things work and failing miserably it was um you know so many failures back then the interesting thing uh, is you're talking about writing advice is that uh, the first book i ever tried to get published was at the age of nine written on a uh, just a writing pad uh called mr plumber mr apple i got a rejection my first rejection letter at the age of nine 1974 it must have been from uh, penguin books would you believe and the advice they gave me then as a young aspiring writer was to get the writers and, and artists yearbook which frankly is still the advice you get when you get a rejection letter from a, a publisher no, nothing really has changed since then no, that, I mean that's awesome. I mean, sending um, sending stuff to big publishers and getting rejection letters. I mean, that's a rite of passage, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I remember I did that with a, a couple of pieces. I think everything was a like a form rejection, apart from one, and she was questioning like my use of apostrophes and alien names. It was a pet hate of hers, but she's actually taken the time to give me some uh, some real feedback. So I appreciate that. Um, yeah, several copies of the writers and artists yearbook and just going through them, trying to see where you could send stuff out to. And I think at that time it seemed um, that was all there was. That was all you could do. Um, it just seemed like your your life was in their hands. Um, and it just seemed like a very slow process uh, with no prospect of any kind of reward at the end of it. Most writers I talk to talk about a love of writing. You know, you and I share that same love of English those early stories that we wrote and then something happens in between you you kind of have to go off and get jobs and real life intervenes and then often it's as we start to get older that we think i need to do this or it's never going to happen what what was your experience of that what was your trajectory i think there was there was probably about five or six years where i wasn't doing any writing at all it was something that i don't even know if, i don't know if, if it was at the back of my mind or not it was just something that i'd done um I still had the printouts of the, those early works that I'd done, but they were just gathering dust in the loft. I can't really remember what it was that got me back into doing it. I think, I think um, I probably just had an idea or an urge one day just to get the pen out again and just start writing something. And I was given a laptop from work, so I actually had another computer I could do some work on in like a private office space. And that kind of excited me then to go off and start creating again. But that first novel then, that took me probably three years, maybe four years to actually wow. get to the finish point. That was, it was crazy. I learned so much doing that. Um, probably wrote about three novels worth just to end up with one novel. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say what sparked me off again. Did that novel see the light of day? 
yeah. That novel is actually The Face Stealer. Oh, right. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, so that novel started out with, I had the idea for one scene, and I just started writing that scene. And I didn't have any inkling of how it would all fit together. Um, so I was, I was just pantsing. I was pantsing for the whole novel. And I'd probably get to about halfway through and have, oh, this is a really good idea. Let's put this in. And then made that awful mistake going back and trying to fit that idea back into what you've already written. And then realizing that just changes the whole course of what you've already got. Um, those are mistakes I don't tend to make anymore just because I know that I must have written about 200, 250,000 words for that first novel. And that novel now I think is maybe 90, 95,000 words. I hear a lot of um, people who give advice to writers say, get your first book out of the way as, as you did there and then throw it away and start again. But I'm not sure I agree with that advice. Now, you know, you've, you've salvaged a book, which is now selling, obviously, uh, the face stealer, and you, and you boiled it down and edited it down to ninety thousand words. What, what do you think of that advice? You know, do you think your first book is is always going to be complete um, rubbish? Because I, I I don't agree with that. No, I don't agree with it. I think everyone's going to be different with this. I think the approach um, matters a lot, and I think if someone wants to, if someone intends to publish their first work, I would advise them to really seriously consider outlining what it is they're about to do. Um, just so they don't make those same mistakes that I've done. Because if you make if you make the mistake of getting to 50,000 words and then trashing it because of a new idea, that's so disheartening. And if you haven't had that experience already, you might just abandon the whole project. And that's disastrous for um, for new writers. I think my advice really would be to do something like NaNoWriMo and I know that gets a lot of stick because come the end of November, you have all these um, all these new writers suddenly with 50,000 words of material in their hands, which they want to send off immediately. But getting to 50,000 words and calling this a project as, you know, a complete draft or something, that's such a massive boost. Um, and that could spur people on to do other things, whether or not they take that first 50,000 words and re-edit it into something magnificent or not doesn't really matter it's that achievement of having 50,000 words done in a month which can it's not a month is nothing is it that in the lifespan of a, a writer um and then they can go on to do other great things no I, I totally agree with you I've I've gone to a couple of conferences which were traditionally biased and I think so many uh, authors who try um, who aspire to be traditionally published they think somehow that a book has to take forever has to take you know a year or, or two years and the thing about NaNoWriMo is I think it shows you that you can write a book very quickly that doesn't necessarily mean it's a great book but that the writing process doesn't have to be this great terrible sluggish you know painful process you can actually just sit down and get the blasted thing written if you want to absolutely and so I'm interested in your take on this so I'm pretty sure Dean Wesley Smith has a lot to say around traditional that we the 10 sacred cows of publishing i think is one of his compilations and there's that myth around it takes you know a year to write a book or more but doesn't that come from traditional publishing's marketing cycles as much as anything 
Well, I think it, it does because the traditional uh, uh, publishing, I, I, I know, I said not going to mention any names, but um, I know somebody who's got a, a publishing deal. But the, the book's not coming out till next March, you know, a year. And then for goodness sake, who, who's going to wait that long? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, uh, and, and so they can't, I mean, clearly they've got to, you know, if you're a book publisher, you've got to launch, you can't just launch them all at once, otherwise they'll all miss fire. So I, I, I appreciate those cycles, but I think I, I haven't got the patience to wait that long. I just want to get the things out there. Yeah, I'm absolutely with you there. And um, it just makes me wonder what a lot of traditional authors spend their days doing. Is it all research? Is it is it rewriting and rewriting and rewriting? Because it doesn't take a year to write a book. Um, it, it just doesn't. If you can write at 1,000 to 2,000 words an hour, um, you can get a book done in a month. It's, it's um, yeah, I don't know where the year thing comes from. Well, I think that's a mindset thing. And, uh, you know, that's that's my view. And when I was talking to traditional authors, the, the thing is they've written this book. They've taken ages to write it. And then they go through this slow process of submission and rejection. And my view always is, is you know what, you know, in the time that's taken for you to be knocked back all those times and to go through the rewrites, you could have been writing new books and improving because, as, as you and I know, when you write the first one, the first one I always think is the is the sort of loneliest journey and that you haven't really got a clue where you're heading when you start. And you've really got to arrive at the end to be able to look back on the whole journey and then make the improvements. And then from there on after, I think, after that first book, I think it all then starts to just get better and better and better. It's my experience of it. Yeah, and I'd agree. That first one is very lonely. And pre-writing um, podcasts and lots of you know good advice and blogs, it, it's incredibly lonely if you're sat there doing it on your own. Um, and yeah, I don't understand. You, you just need to get words written. Every word you write improves you. Um, if you did NaNoWriMo every, every month for a year, you know, you'd be a fantastic writer at the end of it. You'd have so many words under your belt. You would know what worked for you and what didn't work for you. And you would learn all of those, um, all of those tricks that can keep you getting onto the next page. And you can learn everything you need about cliffhangers. You need to know, you can learn what genre you like writing in, what you're comfortable writing in, um, what, what uh, procrastination tips work for you what times of day work best for you, how you fit it into your life, all those things you can get over with very quickly. And then you can start steering a steadier path towards where you actually really want to go. And when did you first have a go at NaNoWriMo? Was it earlier on in your career? So I'm, I'm wondering now, going back to what spurred me on again to, to, um, to start writing the face of that, I'm wondering whether I did do a NaNoWriMo just before that. Cause there is, I do have another novel sat somewhere. Um, and I don't think I finished it. I think I got to about 35,000 words before I stopped doing it. So I suspect NaNoWriMo was suggested to me and that got me that writing bug again um, and then moved on to The Face Dealer. When you launched that book, um, what was your process? It was a couple of years ago now, and self-publishing you know, it's like a you're like a self-publishing old boy. Um, you know, if you've been doing it for a couple of years, um, you know, how, what was that process like then when you published? It, I think process sounds too grand a term for, <laughs> for, for what I actually did. Um, I was reading the novel was finished, pretty much, and I was talking to a colleague in work who had just announced out of the blue that he'd published a book and he showed me the book cover and this is going on Amazon and I, I'm going on the radio to talk about it. And I was like, what? 
what, you just come out from the blue and you, this is amazing. So I went home and uh, I stumbled across, is it the science fiction author? Is it, is it Robert Heinlein? Oh, uh, yeah, I know, I know who you mean, yeah. And he's got those rules, and one of those rules was like, um, pretty much publish it, don't let it sit there. So I thought, right, I'm going to work on this. So I worked on it for a couple of weeks and followed all of the formatting advice. So this was before I was using Scrivener, so I was using Word for this one, um, bumbling my way through Word for a novel, which is tricky. I think it was tricky for me at the time. And I followed this words, um, not the words, sorry, the, the advice on the Smashwords website. And they had the style guide that it was, the ebook that it was given away. Followed all that to get all the formatting. Realised needed a cover. Didn't have a clue what I should do about getting a cover. Made one myself. Oh. Um, yeah, great. Um, and then click publish and it, it was just live. It was like, okay, this is live. What now? And I had no idea. So there was no launch. I just went to KDP Select, pressed the you know the launch button, got it up there, and it was it was just in the shop. And I had no idea what to do with it. And it's only really in the last the last six months that I've really started to come up with solid launch plans as to uh, you know everything that needs to be done the month before, building up to the actual day of launch, and then you know the follow up the the weeks afterwards. But yeah, I was making it up as I went along. Then I think that was, I think that was back in 2013, so that, you know, that's a while ago. It is in self-publishing terms, and it's, it seems ridiculous to say that, but but actually, it was very different then, wasn't it? You know, four years is a long time in, in self-publishing. I think. I mean, we didn't have. I'm going to talk to you later about Instafree, but we didn't have. You know, different marketing channels weren't available even to us then. No, no, not at all. Um, and I don't. I suppose. I suppose the Kindle Gold Rush, was that still kind of a thing back in 2013? Mm, I think it was. It was certainly the tail end of it, wasn't it? So I think around then, there was, um, you're finding more and more people coming on with support services, really, for authors. Um, but at the time, I, w- I wasn't even aware to look for that kind of thing when I released the first one. When you um, published, did you just go for Amazon or did you go wide with your publishing? I went with Amazon initially because I signed into, I ticked the box for KDP Select. It's like joining the Foreign Legion, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, what does this checkbox do? Let's Mm. see, I'll select that, that's fine. And then understanding what that meant further down the line. The King's Shilling, it's like the King's Shilling, isn't it, the old days? (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, it's a terrible kind of experience for new authors coming into it because you don't really understand the implications of it. Um, And being tied into them for, for 90 days... I suppose for me it wasn't that big a deal because at the time I don't think it would have made much difference in those 90 days whether I was wide or not. Um, it was just a chance for me to kind of deal with that project. So that that book was dealt with. I wouldn't have to consider a work in progress again. I could move on to something else. So it was really about drawing a line. Um, and that was the most significant takeaway I've got from that experience. What about... Um what about now? Do, do, do you see the value of going wide or are you still kind of all in with Amazon? Well, I, I am wide. So I, I pulled out of KDB Select um, I think the beginning of this year. I wasn't getting any um, page reads, page, page reads on a, Unlimited. Um, it just seemed like, what have I got to lose from doing this? And there was a lot of 
discussion at the time as to whether the page flip functionality um, on the Kindle devices was messing up other people's page reads. So rather than dealing with all of that, I kind of, I kind of took a different approach and said, okay, well, this isn't working for me and I, I can't be bothered to look into whether this is an issue for my particular eBooks. So I'm going to go wide. And I think when I'm in doubt, I tend to follow what Joanna Penn <laughs> suggested in the past. <laughs> when in doubt, listen to Joanna's podcast. Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> so I mean, that, that's worked for me quite a few times. Um, so I went wide at that point. Um, I don't know whether it's the right thing to do. I'm seeing sales on other channels, so and I'm not promoting them. So I'm taking that as a reasonable sign that I've, I haven't made a terrible mistake. Um, and it's allowed me to do – well, I had to do one of them anyway because I wanted to do a perma-free. So at least one of my books had to go wide to allow me to get them to price match to zero. Um, and I just thought at the time, right, I'm going to make it all wide. And you mentioned Smashwords earlier. Do you use Drafted Digital Smashwords or something else to, to do Dra- that? I'm on Drafted Digital now. Hmm. Um, there was, I did consider going back to Smashwords, but there seemed to be that kind of prevailing wisdom at the time I was doing at the beginning of this year that Drafted Digital was the better experience. Um, so I thought, well, I haven't tried them. I'm going to try them. And I've been really happy with that experience. Um, I'm liking the interface. I'm liking the reports I'm getting. I'm liking using their uh, universal links. That's all just a little bit of convenience, which I'm taking advantage of. They're very innovative, aren't they? And Smashwords still looks like something from the 1990s, late 90s, I think. Yeah, I th- they still have the storefront at Smashwords, don't they? Uh, I, well, I looked at it once. You know that guide you referred to earlier, the formatting guide? Yeah. Uh, when I was trying to decide who to go with, I took one look at that and thought, nah, Drafted Digital it is. And, 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 and that was my thorough author research. <laughs> it just looked like too much hard work, Smashwords, to me. Yeah, I, I suppose... I- I think things have moved on that I'm using Scrivener now to publish the, you know, to do the formatting of my eBooks. So I wasn't that concerned about the formatting, but I remember the last time I looked at Smashwords and um, there is that storefront side of it and it, it didn't look like it had moved on. Um, and I can see why. I mean, it, it must take an awful lot of investment to get something looking really polished. Um, but Drafted Digital just it blew the socks out, really, blew the socks off of there. Smashwords at the time. And that book linker service, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard about it before, absolutely wonderful the way that they, they create these special links that take you to your favourite store. And I think they're geolocated as well, as far, if I remember correctly, so that if you're in the US, it takes you to the US store. It's very, very clever stuff. And um, th- I think that's why I, I kind of jumped with Draft Digital. I do have a, a tendency to like companies which constantly innovate and, and, and push the boat out all the time. It, and it's, it's a very simple thing really but it can be really useful for us when we're putting websites together or newsletters together and facebook posts i've got one place now um i can go to grab those links and put them in and i don't have to worry about it um and you, don't, you don't have to start listing out all the different amazon stores and all their different links and stuff which is just so such a waste of time absolutely so that's a top tip if you've not tried draft digital yet it's really hard to say that's the, the, dis- that's the disadvantage of it i really stumble every time after draft the digital smash words is a lot easier i'm changing um now you've also mentioned um you you did what i did i think most authors do you started your first book in word you quickly realized what a terrible terrible mistake that was and and, and found something else and you've settled on scrivener did you try anything else en route no it was um 
it was Word and then it was Scrivener. So Scrivener are one, they were one of the promoters for NaNoWriMo. So I think there was a discount code um, for NaNoWriMo Completus. So I think at the time, I think I must have paid £25 for it. So it's cheap, that, cheap anyway, isn't it? Even even with a, without a discount. It's incredibly cheap. It's And I can't believe that it still gets quite a bit of stick, really. Like on People complain about the Windows version compared to the Mac version, but it's everything I can possibly need, the Windows version. Um, so there must be some really strange um, requirements. Not strange requirements. There's a lot of requirements I must, mustn't understand um, from some quarters. Um, but as soon as I started using Scrivener, and I suppose initially it's very strange because if you're used to using Word and you've just got this whole linear document that you can just scroll up and down through all day long, um, seeing sets of index cards and scenes broken down can be a bit daunting. Um, but once you get your head around that and you can understand that you just need to write in little bite-sized chunks, which you can then shift around. Oh, that's just that's just awesome. And that suits the way I work. So if I've got uh, 25 minutes to do some writing, I know that I can write one of these little scenes. And I don't have to worry about where it fits in the whole scheme of things. But it gives me that sense of completion as well. I've, I've completed this this hole. It might be a little bit of a bigger hole, but it's it's um, it gives you that sense of achievement. It's fantastic. I've been having a look at your your blog or your website, I should say, at robertscottnorton.net, and I found some posts from 2013. And you, you've obviously motivated yourself using Scrivener in the same way that I do. You use the project targets function, which is where you can set the total number of words that are going to be in your book, and then you can have daily targets. And I, I found that a superb way of motivating myself to write the books. And I noticed that you've got a whole series of posts there where you're writing a book where you put your, your project target updates, which is a little device I use. Do, do you still use that? Because it is a tremendous way of, of goading yourself to write more. So I do use I do use that, yeah. Um, what I have done in the last week, though, so I've been doing some editing on uh, a novel, and that's been quite draining. So I just want to write some new words. And there's plenty of scenes I can write, but I've been I've been procrastinating, surprisingly enough. <laughs> um, and I just picked up Chris Fox's um, is it five thousand words an hour? That oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know the one you mean. It's some. It's basically it might as well be titled some impossible number of words per minute or something. You know, it's yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, and I put off looking at it because I always assumed it was all around voice dictation, um, but I actually got quite a lot out of it and. One of his um, big things there is, is writing in micro sprints, which is essentially what I've been doing anyway. I write in 25-minute, um, like Pomodoro kind of sprints. Um, and he supplied a couple of spreadsheets in there so you can start tracking word count and words per hour and stuff. And that kind of thing really motivates me. And it's probably you know massively geeky to do it. But I, I love spreadsheets, so I, mm. I, I love sticking a sprint in uh, the spreadsheet just to see how fast I was able to write. Um, and seeing it all add up just motivates me to get the rest on. Can, can I just mention here, uh, this is this is public record because it's on your LinkedIn profile, that you work for Sage. So the fact that you like spreadsheets, probably no great <laughs> surprise. <laughs> yeah, I think spreadsheets are part of any kind of uh, IT professional's job at some point. Um yeah, I'm a technical writer at Sage, um, so I write help topics and 
all these parts of user assistance and manuals and videos and stuff. Um, and that's, I suppose that's one thing that, not, not one thing, but there's a whole bunch of skills that I've taken from the technical writing job, which I'm actually able to use in my writing uh, business. So there's the business side of it. Um, there's the accounting side of it, running a business, using some of our products to do that, which is great. Um, but then there's all the, the nitty stuff like the, the grammar and the, the proofreading and, and that ability to to um, hone in on mistakes and stuff. So I've been able to take that and actually use that in my writing stuff. So I'm pretty chuffed that I've got these two careers running side by side. But but then you've also got this problem of where do I find time to do the writing? And again, snooping around at your uh, your blog posts, I found this wonderful post, uh, and I'll put it on the resources page for your interview. Uh, it's called A Week in the Life of an Indie Author. And I, I think posts like this are just absolutely magic because we've got, you know, Sunday through to the next Saturday, and you've detailed everything that you managed to achieve, and you're holding down a job. And I think posts like this are really good. Often you hear about the people who just, you know, kind of sat down, wrote a book in a day and then made a million sales. And actually that, <laughs> they can be off-putting sometimes because actually mere mortals, that isn't the life or the experience that most of us have. And yours, I think, is very kind of nitty-gritty. This is how it works. So um, what made you write that that post? Was it was it that sort of feeling that, <laughs> you know, that so we don't really get the reality of it, of it a lot of the time? So I think when I wrote that, there was um, that was that was a fairly it was a fairly interesting week. I think I was doing a fairly diverse set of tasks to do with indie publishing, um, and I think I was I was probably a little bit I was probably a little bit fed up. So John Penn always talks about comparisonitis, it's like the, the killer thing for for indies, and I think I was probably been doing a little bit too much of that. Um, and also, I was just I, I was. Um, Imagining people were think that it's very easy doing what we do and that we just sit in front of our computers and just pour the words out and then we have a novel and they don't see that business side of it. And now as you're in indie, you've got to do that business side of it. And there's so much that you need to do that people just don't understand. And it's it's only something other indies understand. And I just wanted to detail that, just to share this little slice of life with my non-writer friends um, it wasn't to say at all, this is a really hard life I've got. Um, it was just to say, this is what I want to achieve in life. And this is how I'm going about it. And these are all these little tasks that you probably don't understand, but they're so crucial to what I'm trying to do as much as getting the words out on paper are crucial. And then if I just run through Sunday very quickly, you've got wrote 2,458 words in 1.5 hours. You wrote a book review and posted that on your website. You did some auto um, posts on Buffer. You updated your production um, schedule. Um, you did a weekly review, which keeps your business running smoothly, and you updated your finance. And, you know, literally in that one-day snapshot, that's the life of an indie author. Actually, it's writing and a bit of all sorts of other things too. Yeah, it, it is. And... Um... One thing there you mentioned was the, the weekly review part, and that weekly review part is something that I've taken from my life at Sage and use it in my writing business. And it is, it's just that, it's just a checklist, a series of checklists. Have you done this this week? Have you done this? Have you filled up your social media buffers? Have you um, updated your word count spreadsheets? Have you replied to any emails you've got from uh, uh, readers? All those kind of things. And it's just to keep me sane. It's just to get me through the next week 
uh, with some level of comfort that things are ticking over okay, that I haven't forgotten anything. Well, that, that's interesting, you see, because I'm I'm a real kind of planning guy. So I always say I've got this, I've got a quarter one to quarter four planning board to my left here. And to, to my left also on a little hook here, I plan my weeks uh, down to segments within the day. And the reason that I do that is because I know that all i got to do is turn up at the appointed time and the work will get done, the tasks will get done. And it sounds like you're running a, a similar thing there because sometimes it could just run, if you, if you let it panic, if you let it get away from you, you can feel like you're achieving nothing thing i think at times yeah that's just true i tend to follow i've been a fan of productivity systems probably for the last 10 maybe even longer 15 years maybe um started out by listening to not listening to uh looking at zen habits i think zenhabits.net from leo babauta and he was very into productivity back then but then that got me into other things like the getting things done system by david allen i want to say um Part of those processes are all around um, deciding on what's most important to do today and getting that done, but also that moment of checking in with yourself and with all these other tasks, which is that weekly review part. And I, I honestly think without that part, I, I would have just gone mad in my work life as well as my my business life because it's the only thing that um, brings me back to centre, really. One of the things I find very interesting, and this makes me wish that I could be more disciplined about my blog, is I'm looking at one post. I'm flicking between posts here. Uh, one is 2013, when you're saying, I think that 500 words a day is a good target. And then I fast forward four years, magically, to 2017. <laughs> and, in your, and in your diary, you are here writing, you know, 3,000 words a day, two and a half thousand, certainly well over 2,000 words a day. And, and, and you see, this is... I think when you chronicle your writing life through something like a podcast too, you can, you can turn back the clock and say, you know, wow, I've made, what great progress I made in that time. Yeah. And um, I mean, there are reasons for doing that, but I could go back to Joanna Penn. So Joanna Penn was recently talking around comparing things in four year um, periods. So she calls it every Olympics. She looks back at where her business was four years ago. So you're looking back four years then to, 2013 post where I was writing 500 words a day is, is a great target and that is a massive motivator as well you write down all these little things that you've done so my website has changed providers um got a mailing list now never had a mailing list I've got several novels published rather than just that first one um got a Facebook uh, group going been on several podcasts so this is massive progress um but yeah, four-year chunks is, is a really, really good timescale, I think, to see where your progress is. She's a very influential lady because on my little board to my left hand here, I've got a little blue square that has 24th of July 2020, which is the Olympics, uh, 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 <laughs> following that precise bit of advice uh, because that's I'm 55 in that year and that's kind of a big target year for me for all sorts of, of reasons. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think uh, it doesn't have to be the Olympics, but that time frame... I think your blogs illustrate how effective that is because I bet when you wrote that, I don't, you probably can't remember it now in 2013. If you'd have told yourself that your future self could write two and a half thousand words in a day, you probably would have laughed and said, it's not possible. Yeah, absolutely. It, 500 words back then was mammoth. That was, um, but that was a lot of it is technique as well. And that was because it was pantsing, um, sitting down to a blank page, not knowing what you need to write. 500 words is huge. 
But now when it comes to the computer and I know what the scene is and I know what the goals of that scene are and I've even written the, um, the beats for that scene, um, founded words is, I don't know, what, 10 minutes work, 15 minutes work, probably. Yeah, I, I well, I, I do my writing in 5,000-word batches, so I know exactly what my speed is. So I could do uh, I do 1,500 words in an hour. Um, so it's, it's it's a little bit Chris Fox-ish, but not quite. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I could do 5,000 words in, what is it? Is it three and a half? Three and a half hours, something like that. Yeah, three and a yeah. half hours, I think it is. Yeah. Um, so, but you get to know your speed. This is the other thing about keeping going at it. I think. I mean, I bet you know what your speed is, don't you, for writing? Yeah. So I can write. Um, if I've, but this depends on certain things being in place. So, if I have written the beats for the scene I'm about to write, so, um, so the beats is like like a, a very loose series of events that are going to happen in in this scene. Um, if I've got that already written. I can write 2,000 words in an hour. Um, and I'm quite happy with that. So and when you've got two kids and full-time job and you're having to commute and stuff, um, it's very, very hard to find long chunks of time. But if you can remind yourself that actually I can get all the writing I need to do today in one hour, um, that helps keep you going as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, two thousand words in an hour is is, is a great uh, number of words to to have. I think. Uh, going back to this article that that you've got here, I notice sometimes that you uh, work an hour at lunch. Now, I know you also before we started recording, you said that you work at home. Do, do you actually manage to sort of write when you're actually in an office workplace uh, in that environment? Yeah. So, so I live in Southport and commute to Manchester three times a week. Um, and I've been doing that for 20 years this year. And over that time, the traffic is just crazy. The traffic just builds up. So I leave home much earlier now. I'm leaving home at about um, 10 to 6 in the morning. Oh, my goodness. I'm not even up then. <laughs> <laughs> so 10 to 6 in the morning, I'll be at work at my desk by, say, quarter to 7. And I don't start work till 8. So I've, cry. Got, <laughs> so I've got an hour. <laughs> I've got at least an hour before people start coming in. Um, where I can write and then at lunchtime it's just the, the headphones go on so the headphones go on and put some film soundtracks on hopefully kind of relevant to the scene I'm about to write that's most useful but anything will do um, like noise cancelling headphones so don't hear the, the office chatter and I can sit there quite happily and, and you know get another thousand words out at lunchtime can I ask you about noise cancelling headphones? Because I've heard, um, well, again, <laughs> Joanna Pendai, I mentioned her name again, but she was talking about noise cancelling headphones, and I've heard somebody else talk about them. You're the third person I've heard talk about them. Um, do they do they really cancel the noise? Are, are they really that good? Um, so the ones I've got were given to me um, because they made the user feel quite nauseous, which is a strange thing to, to happen with headphones. Um and she passed them on to another friend, and they made that person feel nauseous wow, as well. That's interesting. I don't know. I don't know whether this is a thing with noise cancelling headphones. I don't have a problem with them, but there's a little switch on it, so when it's turned off, um, things sound quite dull, and you can hear lots of shunner. But when I turn it on, everything sounds really crisp. Um, you can still hear people around you, but it's far 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 less distracting than just with normal headphones and i find that i don't have to have i used to just use my um like my phone headphones that i got with the phone 
Um, but you have to have the phone really loud then to, to drown out the noise of people in the office. But that's not the case with these. You, you can have it at a level which is just right for you. I don't know how much they're worth spending on. Um, and it really depends on where you do most of your writing. If you do it um, when I'm at home writing, it's far less distracting. So I don't have noise cancelling headphones at home um, if I need to write because like the kids are, are playing or something. Um, I just put normal headphones on and that's fine. When did you decide that it was time to start building an email marketing list? Because this is how you and me met. We met through an Insta freebie uh, event. So you must be building a list at the moment. Yeah. Um, so this would have been probably no more than 12 months ago. Um, I'd imagine it was from listening to one of the podcasts that I was listening to. So, uh, it probably wouldn't have been Mark Dawson's one. It might have been the self-publishing podcast because um, they were talking a lot about mailing lists at the time. I think it was probably them. Um, and I was just transferring my blog over to a different site. I think I was looking into what mailing list providers I needed to do. But that was that was a slow process. I mean, getting the first sign-ups designed and understanding even what you would do with a mailing list was just crazy. And then having, I think I had like 30 people on my mailing list for probably about six months before I even kind of understood how to expand it. Well, it took me uh, a year to get 25 when I started in 2008 or nine, whenever it was. So, so you, you've beaten me with that, <laughs> that target of 30. Because it's, well, it's hard work. <laughs> yeah, well, people talk about it like, oh, yeah, yeah, you just set it up and off you go. And actually, you know, it's a lot. And interestingly, uh, we were talking before we started recording, you know, as an internet marketer, I had a list, I think, of uh, my peak of about 25,000 subscribers in a, in, you know, in a different um, area. And uh, and so in theory, I know what I'm doing, but I've I still struggle as an author. It's very hard as an author, I think, to uh, build a list. Um, uh, you know, it's not that easy, and not as easy as people would have to believe. I don't think. No, I think there was uh, my initial um, kind of instructions from that were coming from. I think it was probably Nick Stevenson's Reader Magnets book. Um, I think the advice at the time was to get book one out, and in book one, um, have the sign up link for book two where people get book two for free and that really only worked if you had two books out and if you were and if you're happy to not have any money coming for, for, for two books um so there was that advice and then um there was a lot of advice around content marketing around trying to drive people to your website um, and that's probably why i was doing a fair few blog posts at the time and um, just trying to get people to go there just to sign up but even with that i mean organically for me where I was, it's very, very slow, very painful process back then. And that was before I even had any um, uh, automation on the mailing list. So I was with MailChimp at the time on the free list. And I think the free list didn't give you any automation. So there was no chance to give any drip feed campaigns through. I've since moved over to MailerLite uh, on one of their paid plans because the subscribers have grown. Um, and using their automation, it's like, yeah, this is what I needed a year ago. This is, this is brilliant. Right. Okay. So I, I'm just about to switch to MailerLite. Uh, now, interestingly, I don't like MailChimp and don't, don't use it. Uh, and I've used GetResponse for many years, but I'm looking at MailerLite now. My, I'm just about to go over, 
a limit, a 5,000 limit, which is going to cost me more. Whenever things cost me more, I start looking around uh, the services, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, every, and the buzz seems to be about MailerLite at the moment. So, so tell me why it's so good, because it is very cheap, actually. Well, I came across MailerLite from, um, it was just from a Facebook group, and someone has recommended it in a comment on someone else's post, and I'd never heard of it, and I checked it out. And the first thing that struck me was how nice the website was to, to browse through. It was like, this seems worlds away from what I was using on MailChimp. I understood the terminology. I uh, was able to play around with some things. And then the price hit me. And at that time, um, I could have gone on a free plan and still had automation. And it wasn't costing me anything. And I was like, okay, this is really seriously worth taking a look. So I moved to get the automation. Um, and then once I had the automation and saw how straightforward that was, I was just loving using it. I was loving using it to put um, newsletters together. Their uh, newsletter compilation uh, interface was just blowing the socks off MailChimp's. It was just so easy to use. And then they were always releasing you know, new features, and there, was, there just seemed a little bit of a buzz about it. Then they were talking around... Uh, some price increases and that was what made me jump onto one of their slight I think I'd moved up to like the next tier or something on one of their paid plans because I thought you know I love this I need to support it because I want to carry on using it so I'm going on to one of their paid plans um and I haven't really looked back there's no have no incentive to move to anyone else well, I'm pleased you've said that because um, I'm just I'm starting to move contacts over into actually I've started paying for it already um, but I, I, I've got to run get response I paid quite a lot of money for it for a year but I'm going to move out of it lock stock and barrel at some point so I'm pleased you've told me that and also um, uh, hot off the press as we record this it's about to integrate with um, InstaFreebie I just noticed on their updates this week oh that'd be awesome <laughs> so that that's just that, that's perfect then isn't it yeah so every morning so if you want to talk about Instagram in a bit, but every morning one of my things is um, I am exporting my new signups on Instafreebie as a CSV file and cutting and pasting those into MailerLite, which probably takes me two minutes. It's not a big deal, um, but it's something I don't really want to have to do. So integration is just going to be, yeah, excellent. But you know, you've heard of Zapier, though. You know about Zapier, don't you? Yeah, so I was using Zapier. So Zapier would let me go into MailChimp, and then I could use... Sorry, yeah, so Instafreebie would go into MailChimp, then they could use Zapier to go from MailChimp to MailerLite. That's why I understood it. I did set it up, but I wasn't happy with what I was seeing. I didn't really understand whether the people that were appearing on my MailerLite list were getting the automation, mm. and that scared me. So <laughs> the moment I got scared of it, I couldn't, um, I couldn't be bothered trying to understand what was going on with it. I just said, no, I'm not doing that. I'll just, I'll just, I'm just going back to two minutes a day doing this. Um, and that's my approach to a lot of things sometimes. If I don't understand it, I'll just move on. Well, you, you took part in one of my, uh, well, actually, it was my very first uh, Insta freebie giveaway, which was for um, sci-fi authors, and you were placed in the top 10 in that particular uh, giveaway event. H- how many of these Insta freebie events have you taken part in now, and how would you find them for building your list? Um, so I think I've taken part in maybe eight Um I think I came to Instafreebie fairly late. Um, I was encouraged by another writer to get moving with it. I went from a, a list size of um, 230, probably about four or five months ago. And that list had only grown because of a giveaway that I'd done, which the 
um, the people on that list weren't massively responsive anyway. So I wasn't thrilled. Um, so I've done eight or nine, and now my mailing list is at, I think, 2,800. Yeah, it's very fast, isn't it? And I, I think just prior to taking out an Insta Freebie subscription, I was playing around with lead gen ads on Facebook and just being massively disappointed. Um, you know, maybe getting one or two signups a day, which was costing me like five pounds or something. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, this, this, let's not, let's not even try to get these Facebook ads working. Let's just do Insta Freebie for now. And well, that's my I, I calculated it um, as a result of these giveaways and uh, I did, you know, Facebook lead generation as well. And I, I didn't do, you know, terribly badly with that. It cost me a lot of money, but I, I can't remember what it averaged out at. But I was paying because I wasn't very good at it. You know, thirty nine p. I think probably lower for some leads, and then some of them were a lot higher, obviously. And I did get quite a lot of leads off it. But the minute I touched Insta Freebie, I was getting them for twenty cents a lead or less, actually less than twenty cents, because effectively I was just paying twenty dollars a month for Insta Freebie and adding about a thousand leads a time, you know, in a giveaway. And I've never seen anything as fast as it. it's brilliant. I think the thing that amazed me was that um, even before I took part in any giveaway, I was getting three or four sign-ups every day. Yes, automatically. Anything. Yeah. yeah, it was just happening. So I'd put a, a free book up there and three or four every day. Like, well, where's he come from? Right, okay, that's brilliant. Yeah, let's just do that. So, I mean, the £20, £20, $20 a month, it's just worth it. Just Even if you did no giveaways, um, it, it was working out cheaper than doing lead gen ads for me. Yeah, just sitting there, as you say, just sit there and they find you. Uh, and I was the same as you. I was thinking, where are these? I don't even know where they're finding me, but thank you very much. I'll have them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but so yeah, I'm very impressed with it. The, the only thing I would say about Insta Freebie is I do think it's limited in that there's a limited pool of authors who are using it. And so therefore, you know, you see the same old faces pretty quickly on, on the events and the same <laughs> old books. And so I, I think that it's actually very good. If you want to get up to sort of, you know, maybe as high as 5,000 subscribers very, very quickly and cheaply, I think it's very good for that. And that will give you leverage elsewhere uh, with other authors. But I, I think it has a time limit on it. I don't think you can do it forever. No, I absolutely agree. I think you can see now that, I mean, I've done a couple of giveaways in the last month and they haven't done as nowhere near as well as the, the first few I've done. Um, but like a side effect of it. So I've signed up to a few um people's newsletters as a result of going through into freedom myself and then suddenly getting lots and lots of author newsletters through in your inbox um and i can't imagine what these readers are going through yeah. um, you know several author newsletters you know every day or every week that's a lot that's a lot of information and if people aren't being careful about what they're communicating with their readers um people are just going to start seeing these come through just mark them as spam and then eventually stop going to Insta Freebie altogether because they're going to associate it with getting a lot of rubbish through into their inbox. Absolutely. Somebody's signing me up for these letters. I don't remember saying yes to it, but I, I must have done somewhere. Uh, because. Um, but I, I agree with you. You know, the average giveaway, I mean, I think I have about 35 on mine. I mean, you imagine the blooming emails you're going to get as a result of that. Drive your spare, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it will do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that, that's why you start seeing, like, spam reports coming through in, it's because email providers are making it much easier now to mark things as spam. And I used to be uh, an advocate of Inbox Zero uh, probably like six months ago. So I would not end the day if there was any emails in my inbox. It would have to be cleared. And now there's, I've just given up. There's just hundreds in my inbox, and I don't even try to process them. I just take out anything to do with the, the writing business, 
shove that somewhere else. Stuff might get read. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that looks interesting, but I know I'm never going to get time to read it. Um, so I think the, the should we call it a bubble? Maybe the bubble's going to burst at some point and um, authors are going to start getting turned off from using it. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. And, I, and I'm only viewing Insta Freebies making hay while the sun shines. The, the other top tip I would give for, for anybody who's got technical ability is um, when I held my giveaways, um, it was the, the second one, actually, that I was a bit cleverer with, with the crime one. Um, I got um, I um, used retargeting for Facebook and got 7,700 um, sort of a, an audience in Facebook of 7,700 just from hosting the giveaway and having the pixel on there. So my kind of top tip to people at the moment until the bubble bursts, as you say, is to actually host these things and to, to use both of the techniques that we're all using at the moment, you know, to use Insta Freebie to build a custom audience in Facebook and then to build a lookalike audience from that because it's really, really effective in building custom audiences. I mean, that sounds awesome. Um, it sounds like a lot of work though. <laughs> No, we're not. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it is. It is a lot of work hosting the. Shall I tell you when you host um, uh, an Insta freebie giveaway? Shall I tell you the biggest pain in the butt is people's author names. Is that like you're dealing with all these different names? And you think, what well, you know? What the heck are you called? What's your name? Because they've got different names on books and emails and things, and that, it's just identifying who's who is the biggest problem. Um, I, I, that's a ridiculous thing to say, but it is. I don't. You know, I'm trying to work out what you're called and what your real name is and things like that all the time. So. Um, no, I, don't, I don't envy that. I did consider, I think, two months ago, thinking, how hard can it be to do one of these into free things? <laughs> it doesn't sound that hard. I'm sure, you know, me and a couple of boys could get together and do this. And it's like, and someone else said, no, that sounds like a lot of work. And it's like, I didn't need much convincing to say, yeah. Right. It, it's not that bad. I'm going to do a couple of them. You see, I tell you why I was testing it. I was thinking of doing an Insta freebie business. I was trying to work out whether I could make any money, you know, setting them up for people and actually having done a couple of myself. I think, Joe, there's so much work involved here. I might as well work at McDonald's and flip burgers for what I'd make an hour, you know, out of what authors would be prepared to pay for it. So I just forgot it. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it as a service, but because I could knock these up fairly quickly myself, I thought I'll do a few, I'll build a few custom audiences and then I'll probably move on to whatever the next thing is but um it has built my audiences very fast so i, I get, do give it credit for that yeah it, i mean it's brilliant um look forward to see what the next big thing is <laughs> yeah and it is sure as heck it's coming soon because we're all tired of these <laughs> blooming emails that we get from authors you know i, yeah. don't, I don't know what it's going to be but uh, you know it drives you spare doesn't it all these author messages it's as, it's almost as bad as authors who still send automated replies on twitter you know thank you thank you for following me here's my free book um which which seems a little old-fashioned now um you know that went out of fashion a little while ago so it's all these techniques just drive you spare after a while um so, so how effective are you on Twitter. So, where, where's your comfort zone with social media? Um, I'm very comfortable with social media. I, I kind of teach it to corporates and things like that. But um, tw- Twitter is my favourite channel as a as an author. Uh, I'm struggling with Facebook as an author, but as an internet marketer, I had no trouble with it. Uh, but um, as an author, I just think you know there are too many of us all trying to do the same thing and and probably all following Joanna Penn's podcast. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, to the to the letter. So we're just like lemmings, aren't we? You know, running from one thing to the next, and 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 I think things get spent very quickly. They get worn out very fast. I find Twitter very tiring to just to get involved with the the whole kind of stream of 
consciousness that kind of comes from a lot from a lot of people. Um, and just wondering what to put out there that um, people might want to be, you know, might be interested in. It's been a lot easier since I post the the podcast. I mean, to be honest with you, I'll be honest with you, I haven't really got a clue what to say as an author. It's kind of, I always find it's like a bit like chicken and egg as an author on social media. I think this is the problem is that no one knows who the heck you are. So your audience is small. But if your audience became big, then more people would become interested in your social media posts. It's chicken and egg. Um, You know, you're not interested because not enough people know you are yet. But, yeah. but when people do know who you are and start to talk about your books, the thing would take on its own head of steam. So, you know, I think it's a bit difficult, but because I do the podcast, I've always got something fresh, a new author coming on, something new to talk about. And I find that that helps, to be honest with you. But it's working better for the podcast, to be frank, than it is as an author. I'm struggling as an author to really make it cook for me because I haven't really got anything to say. Plus, <laughs> 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 it's... Um... I think that's it's very tricky. I find it easier on Facebook to at least come up with a schedule of what I might put on there. Um, but yeah, Twitter, um, it just felt like a lot of effort for no real gain, I think, just for me for now. So like you say, chicken and egg, hopefully one day people will be you know interested and try to find me on Twitter and then that's the time to well, be looking out for engagement. Um, but right now, yeah, I don't see any engagement, so yeah, I kind of don't see the point for me. I'm waiting for my social media audiences to be hanging on to it, to every word I say, like it's something <laughs> profound, you know, piano playing cats, lol, and then it gets a million shares. That's what I'm waiting for, but it doesn't seem to happen. Yeah. <laughs> no, all, everything needs to go viral. We all need to go viral. That's it. <laughs> exactly. Nothing ever has, unfortunately. So. <laughs> We keep plugging away. Now, look, I'm aware that we're coming up to the hour, and I must ask you, um, I've made a note to remind myself to ask you this, about your your book covers, because I love your book covers, and I noticed you were using a service called, he says, uh, Book Coverpedia, which I'd never heard of before. Can you talk me through your experiences of that? So, um, fantastic guy called uh, Alex Von Ness, um, who has a couple of services. One is nessgraphica.com. And he offered to do my uh, to redo my self-made cover for the face dealer. Um, it, <laughs> what, out of sympathy? <laughs> I think so. I think I think I was feeling sorry for myself, so I put my my self-made cover up on Google Plus and in one of those groups, just asking for feedback on it. And he said he was a designer. Oh, he says I'll I'll offer I'll I'll redo this one first. Like really? Right? Okay. So he came back with something that it was like this is amazing. This is brilliant. And um, ever since then, so I've been in like, close contact with Alex over the last few years, um, and he helps me out every now and then with stuff. Um, but I think with covers at the moment, I'm using pre-made covers. Um, so there's there's GoOnWrite.com that I use a lot, um, and he sells some of them as sets, um, some of those individuals. And the ones that I've bought as individuals, then I've had to come up with my own kind of branding um and i think it, it's just about working i don't think it's excellent by any means and i think at some point um they'll all need to be rebranded to um to lift them again um but yeah the rights right now it's it's uh, really go on right um dot com 
I'm just having a look at that now. Isn't it amazing? This is why I love doing this podcast, you see, because I, I thought I knew all of the book cover um, sites and I've not seen this one before. So uh, that's great. Good. That's going on the list. I should be having, <laughs> having a good old look at that uh, because um, it's expensive business, isn't it, getting your covers? Well, well, it can be. Um, but I don't know about you, but sometimes I go through, and especially when there are sales on, I think, oh, that's quite a nice cover. I'll, I'll get that now just in case. I ever find time to write another novel to fit it. Um, so I've, I've, yeah, I've probably got about maybe six book covers that are just sat there with no books for them, uh, waiting for me to, to get something written. Well, I noticed on one of your posts somewhere, and, and I do this as well, I, I noticed you mentioning that you actually look at covers to get your inspiration. And, and I do that sometimes because a cover sets a very good mood and feel, and it gets my imagination going. And I actually think it's a really good practice if you're, if you're just trying to get some story ideas going to look at covers because it sets off all sorts of ideas. Well, it does. And I think if you look in terms of um, like writing to market, um, so another Chris Fox plug, um, but the idea of of looking at genres that you want to write in and seeing what the competition are producing, and that can really inspire you. So, um, so I'm really interested in writing some some horror novels. Um, so I've gone through and looked through the horror lists in Amazon and seen, well, these are the kind of covers that that are selling these books at the moment, and then you can go to a site like a pre-made site look at their horror categories and you can kind of see the ones which are very uh which would would fit the brief for those ones that are doing well on amazon and those that are really just um not worth even thinking about so that's one reason why i love looking at these book cover sites but i think also i think even before you finished your book i think if you've got a book cover with the name of the the book on it and your author name on it that's massively motivating as well it is for me um i can do quick compiles and scrivener of early drafts send it through to my kindle and have my book cover on it and it's it's a really nice motivator to say well if you just do a little bit more work and get this finished this is what people will see um so i love doing that yeah i think that's a really strong uh, tip to finish with actually because i do a similarly th- similar thing that the minute i can visualize that book and almost touch it it's very very exciting at that yeah. point yeah yeah, absolutely. We've been. Um, you sent me an email before we did this interview saying you're a little bit nervous about doing it, but we've actually overrun our time already, which is always a good sign, I hope. Uh, <laughs> and I must have just finished by asking you, because you are all over the web, where, where are the best places to find out more about you online? I think if you just go to my website, um, robertscottnorton.net, um, you'll find links to uh, my social media and you'll find links to the books as well. That's probably the easiest Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.